0: Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knoth. Hello, hello. As we teased last week, we're having a very special episode this week that is all about our time at the Burton Awards. I'm excited to get into it with you guys. Yeah, always a
1: pleasure to go to the Burton Awards. I myself haven't been for four years. There were COVID cancellations and then some other things, but it was great to be back. In case you forgot, this is a sort of set of legal industry awards that recognizes excellence in the law, legal writing, and there's a few different honorees there. And uh, one of the benefits of Law 360's involvement with this show is that uh, we, the Pro Se crew, get access to some VIPs who you're going to hear from uh, very shortly.
0: Yeah, we've got a lot to go through in today's episode. You're going to hear a lot of interviews. We're going to sort of tell you about what it was like to be there. But Alex, I think yours was one of the most exciting segments we're going to share later in the show.
1: Yeah, I had a chance to speak to the Tennessee Attorney General. His name is Jonathan Skermetti. and he was giving uh, the keynote address at one of the sessions um, at the Burton Awards. And you'll hear all about that later. I, we had quite an interesting talk with him. Uh, we talked about the uniqueness of his role as an attorney general in Tennessee, which is sort of very unique from other state attorney General. Positions, which you'll hear about when the interview comes up. We also talked about some of the more controversial cases that he's been involved with litigating since he's been on the job. Tennessee was one of the first laws to really advance and implement legislation that has really cracked down on drag performances. I'm sure you've seen a lot of that in the news. And we had a, he was pretty candid about his defense of that law against opposition from performers that are affected by it. Hit on a couple on a on a guns rights case, a little bit of climate change stuff. So um, it was a it was a very very enlightening interview. So stick around for that.
0: So no hot button issues whatsoever to talk about
1: there. <laughs> <laughs> to his credit, he was pretty candid, more so than I thought he would. So I'm really happy with how it turned out, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy it as well.
0: Well, speaking of some topics that can sometimes be hot button issues, to kick off today's show, I want to share some clips from. Remarks delivered by retired Justice Breyer, who was one of the speakers, one of the most exciting speakers that was at this program. These are not our interviews, unfortunately, but we do have sort of the exclusive audio to what he had to say to the crowd.
1: You can only hear it here, though. So really, it is, <laughs> Ari. Right. We weren't asking
0: questions, though, is
1: what you're saying. Yes.
0: We weren't. But he had a lot to say. Breyer has a book that's coming out later this year, and he's reflected a lot since his time on the bench and was pretty candid in how he views things like textualism and originalism. So I want to start there with some of his remarks about that.
2: I think the court is moving towards something called textualism or originalism, uh, which are isms of, I don't want to be facetious, I've written it in a very polite way, but that is not the way that I go about deciding cases. And so, uh, well, I, I, I probably have... Go back to McCoa versus Maryland and Marshall, and you know, uh, using purposes and consequences and all kinds of things. Uh, and I wanted people to see how that worked, not to explain it, not to give a theory. You know, there are fifty thousand professors in this country who give better theories than I can. But if I see them, and I want to be a bit mean, I say, "But I have had one experience you haven't had," <laughs> and, and uh, that's what I want people to see. I want them to see how does this work when you actually have to administer it.
0: So I really like that he ended sort of with the question of like, uh, how do you administer stuff when you're thinking about how cases play out in the real world? And as I mentioned before, Breyer has a book that he's been working on. And so he really digs even more into this and makes a pretty funny reference about how you should probably read the 350 pages of his book.
2: It's a serious uh, theory. It's a serious argument and to to uh, answer it takes a, uh, or to describe alternative methods does take maybe 350 pages in a book. Yeah. Uh, so you want me to say in a sentence, and in a sentence, I don't know the same amount of history. Uh, and it's hard to know whether the great knight, whoever he was, I think Sir Percival, something or other, uh, went to the Northampton in the year 1380 Uh, and was or was not allowed uh, to carry in a sword uh, because there was a law against bringing in things that might hurt other people or not. I think uh, perhaps that's interesting to put into an opinion, but Mm. to make the answer to gun control turn on that, I think would probably be a mistake. At least I wouldn't be the best one to know what the answer to that kind of question is.
1: So a lot of intriguing thoughts there about how he looks at originalism, textualism, which is always at the center of any number of court arguments. But the interviewer who was talking to him then shifted gears a little bit. And, you know, because it is a room full of lawyers, there are no shortage of isms to contemplate. The interviewer described Breyer as uh, a pragmatist, uh, an adherent to pragmatism, just kind of doing what you think is most sensible to dispense with the court's business. And he had some pretty blunt thoughts on what he thinks about that label, being labeled a pragmatist
2: you have to you have to be careful of pragmatism the word because it's easy to think that means you just decide the way that you think will be good and that isn't law I mean law tries in a certain long-term way to get there but it gets there on through institutions of all kinds and through complicated rules and through complicated uh, approaches and so forth it's an American philosophy And what it is not just do what you think is good. It is consider, when you're deciding between A and B, uh, consider how choosing A or choosing B will have all kinds of consequences on different institutions. For example, if you think you get a better result by choosing A, but there are 14 cases deciding not A, you realize you're deciding A is going to have a big effect on starry decisis, mm-hmm. on keeping law steady. And if you don't make an effort to really write clearly so that the students, and by the way, that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for these Burton Awards, because they encourage students and lawyers to write clearly, which means people who aren't lawyers will be able to understand what they're talking about. So important. And... and uh, if you if you are not when you if you are going to write in a way or take a position that cannot be explained in language that people can understand, you are going to be uh, you are going to be harmful to a rule of law, which is, as Justice Jackson said, <laughs> quite right, terribly important in this country.
3: Finally, we hear from Justice Breyer on. Some other hot-button issues here, some, some juicy stuff, I would say, his thoughts on reforming the Supreme Court, including issues like term limits, court packing, and a potential code of ethics. So what we have for you here is actually a little dialogue between him and the person who is interviewing him at the Burton Awards.
2: Back to the court for a second, there are, have been several ideas floated. N- not for the first time, about maybe some uh, reforms, if you want to call them that, or improvements of the court, like uh, term limits. What's your thought? Well, uh, hmm. I've said for a long time, many times, you could have term limits. It have to be a long term, maybe 18 years, maybe 20 years. You want a long term because you don't want someone in that job uh, thinking, what's my next job going to be? <laughs> so it would have to be a long term. But I don't see anything particularly wrong with that, and and in fact, it would have made my life easier. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and, uh, and is nine justices enough, or do we need to add more justices? Yeah, well, they tried that, you know, and uh, that was in the Civil War period, and uh, people sort of tended yep. to learn that what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander in that area. Oh, yeah, Franklin Roosevelt tried to do it, too, and it didn't work so well. Um, and how about um, code of ethics? Oh, no, the code of ethics—they're writing about a lot. I mean, I, I you know, there's a, a whole code of ethics written down in like nine volumes for the uh, for the judges. And I didn't distinguish between me and a court of appeals judge, and I got used to looking at all that. So I look at all that, and if it's a really tough problem that isn't there. You can always call, you know, there are a lot of people who are ethics experts. They mm-hmm. teach it and so forth. So, so, And there are some difficult problems. There could be more in the Supreme Court than there are elsewhere for the simple reason that when I'm on the Court of Appeals, if it te- the least resistance is just not sit in a case, they can find someone else to sit. But on the Supreme Court, you can't. And you don't want lawyers trying to, or I'm not saying the lawyers would do this, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, someone might think, if this judge weren't sitting, I wonder if I can think of a reason why this judge what you are. You understand the point. So it's a complicated issue, But I don't think it's an overwhelming issue. Right.
0: It's always so exciting to hear what a former Supreme Court justice has to say about their approach to the law and and how this should all work. And he was quite candid, so glad we got to experience that. But there were a lot of people at these Burton Awards that are legal luminaries that are really worth hearing about projects they're working on and the things that they've achieved in the law. And so I want to introduce our listeners to Betsy Anderson. She is the executive director of the World Justice Project. And that's a group that's a global nonprofit that takes a a real data-driven approach to advancing the rule of law around the world. And so I was able to have an interview with her at the Burton Awards all about what's going on with that group and what they have found about the state of the rule of law. So often we
4: think about the rule of law in terms of the institutions, the courts, the lawyers, the judges who make up the legal system. But that misses a lot of the story, which is, how is this affecting people's lives? And that's what we really try to get into through surveys of people around the world. And then we have developed this rule of law index, which measures the rule of law and really helps us make the case for the importance of the rule of law. Our index measures the rule of law in now 140 countries. We assign a score and ranking to every country on different factors of the rule of law. And we can see from that data, really powerful correlations between the rule of law and other things we care about. So where there's more rule of law, there's more peace. Where there's more rule of law, there's higher GDP. Where there's more rule of law, more kids are in school, infant mortality rates are lower, and so on. So it really helps make the case for the foundational importance of the rule of law.
0: Betsy, you're like my perfect guest because one of the things I was so excited to talk to you about is that index. Because as you said, so few things around the rule of law really put firm numbers to how it's going. Are we moving forward? Are we moving back? I want to talk a bit about the latest iteration of that. I'm very interested in your take on, For I might be boiling this down too much, but how are we doing? How's the rule of law out there? Because it does feel a bit beleaguered after Pandemic, there's a lot of strife going on in the world right now. Where are we according to the firm numbers from the index? So, our last index was published in October of 22.
4: So, we've got a new one coming out in a few months in October of 23. But in the October 22 index, the numbers are not very encouraging. We saw uh, for the fifth year in a row a majority of countries with declining rule of law 61% of countries had declining rule of law. And uh, moreover, we, we had hoped to see a rebound from the pandemic year, which was particularly bad. In 20, the year between 2020 and 2021, 74% of countries saw declines. That was the wow. pandemic year. And that, some of that is understandable because courts were closed, so there were greater delays in justice. Or we couldn't uh, assemble uh, or... Come together in associations during the pandemic. And so our measures of things like free association, free assembly were down. And so we hoped that maybe post-pandemic all of that would rebound. But we didn't really see the recovery that we had hoped for. Fewer countries declined, but still a vast majority declined in this past year. And moreover, two-thirds of the countries that declined in the pandemic year declined further in. Post pandemic year. So we're hanging on for October of this year, hoping that maybe we'll begin to see that rebound effect. But right now, the numbers are not very encouraging.
0: That is a, I think I'm going to go into a spiral here of asking all tough questions because that is a sort of a tough pill to swallow that we didn't just get an immediate rebound, which everybody had hoped for. And now I want to sort of pivot a bit to what you talked about at the Burton Awards today, which was. Efforts to protect and advance the rule of law in the Ukraine, particularly, you know, in the middle of a country beset by war. How do we safeguard the rule of law in that really tough circumstance, especially as the war has drug on for some time now? What, what do you make of that situation and what can be done about it?
4: Well, Ukraine, as I said in my remarks today, is really ground zero for this, this battle between rule of law and rule by law. Um, as we have characterized it. And uh, one of the things that's really interesting and is revealed in our data from the index is that Ukraine, along with a number of other Soviet post-Soviet states, has actually been improving its rule of law year over year. And that's quite unusual. Most of the time in our data, we see countries go up and down a little bit. Um, It's kind of hard for a country to consistently improve year over year. Uh, And yet, Ukraine is one of those countries that, until the war, had been consistently improving. Indeed, it was in the top 10 improvers globally since 2015. And there were four other former Soviet states in that category as well who were in the top 10 improvers. So what's the takeaway there? Well, what we see is leaders in those countries making a very different choice about the future path for their countries than Vladimir Putin has for them. And I think that's really what's at stake in the war. There's a lot made of how NATO expansion or the prospect of NATO expansion was really threatening to Putin. I think it was also the prospect of rule of law taking hold in his neighborhood that was very threatening to Putin and that precipitated the conflict.
0: So the lawyers listening to this episode are all in America, for the most part, few few international listeners, but mostly American lawyers. So if they are hearing you talk about these issues, what the index has found, the the severe challenges in Ukraine, it can feel a little overwhelming about what Americans can do to help. What would you say can be done if you're a lawyer listening to this right now and you want to help be part of the solution to change the trajectory and make sure the rule of law stays strong around the world? What can they do? Well, I think
4: there's really important attention to the rule of law here in the United States um, to be paid by American lawyers. So, and, and and this relates to our efforts to advance the rule of law in places like Ukraine. The U.S. has credibility championing the rule of law only to the extent that we hold ourselves to those same standards. And unfortunately, in our index data, we see declines in U.S. rule of law as we have seen around the world. Since um, between 2016 and 2021 in particular, there was steady decline year over year in the U.S. rule of law scores in our index. It creeped up again in 22. It was a good sign. And yet we're still significantly below where we were in 2016. Moreover, that recent slide compounds long-term weaknesses in the rule of law in the United States, particularly relating to discrimination, where the U.S. ranks 103rd out of 140 countries in our index, and on affordability and accessibility of our justice system, where the U.S. ranks 115th. Out of 140 countries, in those our are index. some
0: tough numbers. I mean, I think Americans listening will perhaps be surprised. Yeah, right. Right. So we sometimes
4: fall into a trap of American exceptionalism. Sure. Well, here the exceptionalism is quite negative. Um, we are exceptionally bad in these areas, and that should be a wake-up call for American lawyers uh, to roll up their sleeves, think about how are those data points showing up in their communities? What is it that they can do together with members of the legal profession uh, to address issues of discrimination, address issues of accessibility of the justice system, um, support for legal aid and, and the like? So that's an important area of focus for rule of law strengthening in the United States. The other issue that we see in our data in the U.S. is declining trust in institutions and trust in accountability. So one of our factors in the Rule of Law Index is factor one, the, in, maybe the most important factor, constraints on government power. To what extent are there checks and balances on executive authority at the local or state or national level? To what extent is the legislature or the courts, or the media, civil society, audit agencies, and even elections, are they a constraint on executive power? And we've seen a steady decline in that area, again, between 2016 and 2021. And some of the numbers are quite startling. So for the index exercise, we survey Americans, we ask lots of different questions about their perceptions and experiences of the rule of law. One of the questions we ask them is whether they think a high-ranking official who commits a crime will be held accountable. When we asked that question in 2016, we had 60% who said, yeah, they thought that probably that person would be held accountable. When we asked it again in 2021, only 24% of Americans said they thought that person would be held accountable. So that's a pretty shocking erosion in trust in this, how these fundamental checks and balances work in the United States.
1: For our main segment this week, I was fortunate enough to catch up with Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Skermetti on uh, a dead point between uh, uh, the, all the goings-on of the Burtons. He was giving the keynote speech at the Legends in Law luncheon. He was nice enough to give us a few minutes uh, actually at the hotel restaurant where we were staying. You'll hear a little, uh, little hustle bustle. I think some kitchen noise is in the background. Uh, but it was a very interesting conversation. We covered a lot of topics uh, in a brief amount of time. So um, I hope everyone enjoys it. Welcome to Pro Se, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Yeah, um, we're here. We are, if it sounds a little different, we are in the, This seems like the place where like made men dine at the Alhambra restaurant, the St. Regis Hotel. So if people hear a little background clutter, that's why. But thank you so much. I wanted to start with something pretty basic that I think A lot of your constituents in Tennessee understand, but I think people in the rest of the country do not, which is that Tennessee is the only state in the union where the attorney general is seated not by a popular election or by a governor appointment, but is picked by the state Supreme Court. I wanted to know, what do you think is important to know about that process and how it informs the way you do your job?
5: So the most important thing about that process is it's not my job to make policy. It's not my job to decide what the state's laws should be. It's my job to look at the policies and the laws that have been adopted by the elected officials and to implement them, to operationalize them, to defend them. Uh, so you know if if there's a federal uh, regulation that interferes with Tennessee's statutes, uh, it's my job to push back against the federal overreach. Uh, if there is a Tennessee law that is uh, alleged to be unconstitutional, It's my job to defend it. Uh, It is not my job to second guess the elected officials. And I think the appointment process makes that very, very clear.
1: Okay. This is a related question because you've been on the job for just under a year. And I wanted to ask about, you know, given your unique position and how you are appointed to that job, How do you go about sort of setting your priorities as the top legal officer? Because when people run for attorney general, they make campaign promises and the people give them a mandate by selecting them. Obviously, you inherit a number of cases and you continue to carry them forward. But when it comes to deciding, you know, what what to litigate and how to do it, I mean, how do you go about that? What what factors go into that process?
5: Uh, So there is an application process that's public. And I was very open that two things really important to me were consumer protection enforcement Uh, and push back against federal regulatory overreach. Uh, Consumer protection is an area where the state AG has traditionally been delegated a great deal of latitude. uh, And so we look at cases there, try to identify the most important and protect our consumers. With respect to the overreach, we were just given additional positions and funding by the governor and the general assembly. uh, And my position is they have ratified uh, that inclination. And to the extent that they're willing to go along with it, I'll keep doing it.
1: Okay, so as we sit here about 10 days ago, um, a federal judge ruled that a Tennessee law banning drag performances in front uh, in in public or in front of children uh, ruled that that law was unconstitutionally vague. Now, your office said you will appeal. I don't suspect uh, I have to ask. I don't know if you want to. It's active litigation, but if you can give us any insight as to what that appeal will look like, uh, I'm all ears. I have other questions about it, too. But
5: sure. So, I mean, the first and most important fact is this wasn't a ban on drag shows. Uh, there was essentially the incorporation of the Miller test. There's language from a 40 year old Tennessee law setting out what the standard is for harmful to children. And the, the standard focuses on explicit sexual activity. So this was not a blanket ban on drag shows. I think it's as, as part of a broader polarization issue, it was taken as such by some people. Um, but you know, this is, The the language at stake here that was found to be unconstitutionally vague is language that is found elsewhere in the Tennessee Code and has previously been uh, subject to a limiting interpretation by the Tennessee Supreme Court. I think it's really important we get clarity there because we're talking about some of these laws that protect children from exposure to explicit sexual conduct. Uh, The legislature needs to know what language they should use to ensure that they're achieving that end. What would you
1: say to people who say that, you know, there are there are laws on the books about, you know, either whether it be indecent exposure or, you know, obscenity or anything like that, that that should be enough to sort of police activity like this rather than sort of single out a specific. I mean, the 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 language in the statute is adult cabaret entertainment, which uh, includes male or female impersonators. I mean, what would you say to people who think it's sort of targeted against a specific industry?
5: I mean, I, I would say it's up to the legislature to decide whether we have enough laws covering something or not. And if there are constitutional constraints, uh, we have an adversarial system where those complaints can be tested. Uh, but, you know, you talk about the obscenity laws. I mean, this is incorporating language from some of the other laws that are intended to protect children from obscenity uh, or from you know the, the obscenity standard applies to adults. I think there's a little more latitude to protect children. so. Because this is language that's been found unconstitutionally vague, that is not uh, cabin to this one law, but appears elsewhere in the code, I think it's really important that we get clarity there.
1: I would agree. Um, I did want to raise something that is uh, in that opinion, which I suspect you'll address in your appeal, because you're from Tennessee. The judge is a Tennessee judge, of course. Um, that judge raised the, raised the hypothetical of a female Elvis impersonator who would make obscene gestures, gyrating hips, whatever you, whatever you want to do. Put put the litigation aside for a second. Let's pretend the law is just on the books as is. Is that, um, is that a case that your office would prosecute?
5: So we don't actually have criminal enforcement authority. This is all; these are all cases that the DAs would bring. Um, you know, each judicial. Humor me. I
1: mean, do you think that that is the kind of thing that the law is meant to address?
5: No, I mean, I think it's meant to address really explicit sexual conduct uh, beyond the gyrating Elvis impersonator. Uh, but you know, I, I, I don't want to get too into the weeds on hypos. I think the, the key thing is we've got this language that's intended to protect kids and we need to make sure that we have constitutionally solid language for that, not just for this law, but for every, every relevant law that uses that language.
1: Okay. We spoke before about your appointment and its independence and how you choose the cases, uh, that you choose and how you choose to defend laws. Um, I want to reframe that around um, a settlement that you struck earlier this year um, in a gun rights case. This was—I mean, I know you know the details. I'm saying for the for the listeners, Tennessee had a law in the books that allowed for open carry without a permit for people 21 and older. Um, the they, the state was sued by a group that said it should that that age should be lowered to 18. Now you settled with a deal that effectively lowers the age to 18. And the the settlement. It should be said. I know there's no causation here, but it was approved on the same day that six people were shot in an elementary school in Nashville. And I just wanted to know. I don't suspect you'll bring us into the room of of settlement talks, but I just want to know what informs the decision to settle a challenge like that. Um, you know, before a, a definitive ruling from a court.
5: There wasn't any back and forth in the settlement. We looked at it. Um, had several very accomplished attorneys spend a lot of time working on that and we determined and I agreed with and decided that there was not a good constitutional defense there. You know, the language of the second amendment refers to the right of the people and the way that our laws were set up, it essentially carved 18 to 20 year olds out of the people. We just saw the range decision come out of the Ambank third circuit that touches on some of the same issues. Uh, and I, I think it's just really difficult to have that kind of age-based variation in treatment. I think the Constitution doesn't support it. The example I like to use is with voting. Um, if you say that you can vote early if you're 21 and up, but you have to vote on election day if you're 18 to 20, I think that poses a constitutional problem. As a matter of policy, I think there are arguments certainly that people have made um, at great length about why age discrimination makes sense there, but we're bound by the statute or by the constitutional language. Um, and there was not a great argument to be made. I mean, I, I think the the risk of winning there is all of a sudden uh, free speech rights, rights to be free from unreasonable search and seizure uh, are all at risk for people depending on what age they are.
1: But you don't see, I mean, clearly you don't see such a compelling First Amendment case in the in the drag ban. I'm, I'm saying drag ban because I, I, know, I know you differed with the with that terminology, but you don't see a compelling clear to say you don't see a compelling reason to settle that one.
5: We think there are decent arguments that can be made in support of the law. And with respect to the Beeler case, we didn't.
1: The two cases are related in the sense that they deal with very pointed social issues. I think that's fair to say. And I wanted to ask you know, whether and how that affects your job of, in this case, defending statutes, um, you know, it's a little bit different than I think all the people can, you know, come to the table and agree, you know, in the instance of the Jewel settlement that you helped strike, uh, that, you know, companies conspiring to sell dangerous chemicals to minors is not a terribly divisive social issue. Guns and uh, trans rights uh, drag shows definitely are. I know you. you began by saying you try and shut out the noise, but can you bring us inside the room and say sort of, I mean, how does the process play out in cases like that rather than head on like corporate malfeasance cases?
5: I mean, it. it we try to be extraordinarily grounded in the law because there's no electoral mandate. Um, you know, our job is is much more aligned with the judicial branch. So me, my senior staff, all the way down to the career attorneys, we all try our best to follow the law. And It is a very unusual circumstance for us not to defend a law. Um, You know, the the threshold is there's not a good faith constitutional argument that we can make.
1: Such as in the guns case that we just discussed.
5: Yeah, that's the only one that's happened so far. And that's where it butts directly into the constitutional text. Um, With First Amendment law, there's a lot of case law that's developed. And, you know, there are defenses that we raised. Judge Parker... Obviously ruled against us. Um, he's a good judge, but we disagree with him about some of those issues. And we have a system where you can take it to the Court of Appeals on legal issues to ensure that you've got the right outcome. Um, you know, it's it's a system designed to maximize accountability so the state can be sued to ensure that its actions comport with the Constitution. Uh, the district court can make a decision. The Court of Appeals provides an additional layer of accountability. Um, you know, it's, it's good to work these things out through litigation and it is my strong preference to always, uh, provide a robust defense to the state wherever we can. It's in a very limited set of circumstances where we're just not able to make a good faith argument.
1: We have a little bit of time. I wanted to ask also, um, Several months ago, you uh, were, you signed on to a letter from several state attorneys general about asset management firms and the way they were using client funds regarding climate change goals. It's a very narrow kind of industry area, but it was interesting to me. Can you explain for people who maybe haven't tracked that issue what the state's concern is about the way those managers devote company money to climate change goals?
5: Sure. So there are two parallel issues here, uh, both of which have traditionally been AG enforcement uh, areas for a century First is antitrust. The second is consumer protection. We have seen some indication that, uh, a variety of industry participants across the financial industry have been signing on to these agreements whereby they are seeking to promote certain outcomes and, uh, deprive their customers of certain opportunities for financing based on things like their use of fossil fuels. Uh, individual companies are allowed to make those decisions when you have collusion across an industry, that's essentially regulation by a group of people with a tremendous amount of power and no democratic accountability. And we have antitrust laws that are squarely on point. Um, if that is in fact happening and it's worth investigating because there is so much concentrated power in the financial industry and we need to ensure that our democracy stays viable as the mechanism through which we make collective decisions. Uh, on the consumer protection front, if there are companies that are directing investments based on considerations other than financial ones, in other you know if they're looking at the policies that companies adopt, they need to be transparent about that because that's constraining the opportunity to make money on behalf of their clients. We've had the fiduciary rule for a very, very, very long time in the law, uh, and you know again, companies can do what they want. They can offer differentiated products. They can sell their customers on a a variety of climate-oriented investment products. They just need to be transparent about it. And, uh, you know, it's an investigation. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen there. But, you know, again, we need to make sure that there's transparency on that front.
1: Um, You began the interview, and thank you for your time. Um, You began the interview by saying that, um, you know, you are a legal officer and you're not concerned with policy. And this isn't really specific to you. I'm always curious about this with any state attorney general. I think it's a little bit misleading to to frame yourself only as a legal officer and not one of policy, because if you stand in a courtroom and you make an argument that leads a judge to say, yes, these people can have guns or no, these people cannot have guns. I mean, that is a political outcome. So, I mean, politics is about the allotment of resources to a population of people, and you are instrumental in deciding whether that happens or not. So how do you square that? I mean, I know that you go in there and make an argument and you have uh, a duty to the constitution, but the outcomes are inherently political. Um, Is that just something you can buy for Kate or?
5: Well, at the end of the day, we're lawyers. I'm a lawyer. I have clients. My clients include the governor and the legislature, and they are the policymakers. And if I'm in a courtroom or one of the people who works for me is in a courtroom making arguments on behalf of the state, it's not our job to decide what the policy priorities are. Uh, we are given that by the elected officials, and we are there to operationalize. So I think it's no different than career civil servants who are going to be making decisions based on the policy decisions made by uh, the people above them who are either elected or appointed by elected officials. Um, you know, and I, I, with respect to consumer protection enforcement priorities, yeah, there's a policy determination to be made there, but that's one that's been delegated to the AG's you know going back over 100 years um with respect to all of these very contentious you know culture war type issues sure. it's not my job to say what the position of the state of Tennessee is it's just my job to represent it well in court
1: well i mean if you're if you're making the the argument that the that the law should stand i mean I, is that not the state of Tennessee's position
5: yeah but it's a law that's been adopted by elected officials it's it's not my job to say this is a good law or this is the way the law should be I'm just there to make the best possible case in defense of the law. So you
1: wouldn't say that the drag ban law is a, you wouldn't say whether it's good or bad on its merits. It's not
5: my job to make that determination.
1: Okay, Um, great. Uh, Well, Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Again, this has been Jonathan Scrometti on Pro Se. I, uh, I greatly enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again.
5: Thank you.
0: This is the spot in a typical episode of Pro Se where we'd have what we call the offbeat segment. And this isn't exactly that, because all of the luminaries honored at the Burton Awards have very serious, exciting jobs, have done a lot for uh, pushing the law forward. So it's not quite as funny as an offbeat, but what we did want to share were some really great stories. And those came from an interview you did, Haley. I spoke with
3: Elizabeth Pugh, who worked as the general counsel for the Library of Congress. And before that, as general counsel for the National Archives and Records Administration, she is now uh, very recently retired. But I caught up with her shortly after she was awarded the Public Service Award in Government. And like you said, Amber, she had some really fun stories to share about her work, including a fantastic anecdote about the filming of the National Treasure movies. But before we get to that, I want to save that one for last. I also asked Elizabeth about her favorite materials in the Library of Congress's collection, and here's what she had to say.
6: The the things that they have in the law library are pretty remarkable. I love to take people in to see the material in the law library. If you're a lawyer, you'd love it. But even if you're not a lawyer, you know, to just come in and see some of the most beautiful things that we have. Uh, You know, we we have an amazing collection. And I've been fortunate because I was there for 22 years, so my family has been in the music division, and we got to see in the music division, okay, from my uh, The Sound of Music, Do a Deer. You probably have seen that, right? So it's um, a yellow 11 by 14 piece of paper where he was creating the song, Do a Deer, and then he crosses it off. I mean, so you see, and I think um, this is another pet peeve of mine. We don't have that anymore. Your generation, you guys don't write letters. You're not. We're not going to have the same kind of letters that we can see Abigail Adams writing to John Adams. You know, when I read, I listened to books on tape, and and when I read John Adams' book, and he died, I'm sitting in the garage in our building, and I'm crying. Okay, he died a long time ago, but I'm crying. But It's because those letters kind of convey the relationship between Jefferson and Adams. And today, you know, people write, they delete, and they don't preserve. And that's one of the things that I think the Library of Congress does, is to make sure that we collect the material, that we preserve it, because we have incredible preservation folks. And then
0: the big issue is to make it accessible. Haley, I absolutely love her answer to this. Number one, because I'm a geeky library nerd kind of lady. So when she starts off with like, well, our law library is pretty cool. Everyone should check it out. I'm immediately locked in. But then she pivots to these great stories about, you know, some beloved original music. I mean, it it really is such a fascinating career she's had to be around all this stuff. And who doesn't love the sound of music?
1: The Hills certainly do. We know that. <laughs> we know what their position is. They are, in <laughs> fact, alive with it. They, I think, depend on it for life. So no no controversy there.
0: Okay, so you've got us going here, Haley. I really like that story. What are some other highlights of your talk with her?
3: Elizabeth also told me about a rather entertaining quest to acquire an
6: extremely expensive and historic map. So here's that story. One of the ones we had, when I first came to the library, I was told that there was a map that we were going to buy. And the map, it was $10 million. And I had just come to the library and I said, okay, so how much money do we have? Zero. So I said, so where are we getting this money to buy this map? And why is it $10 million? Well, it's a Wachimula map and it was from 1507 or something. And it's the first map that shows the word America on it. So we considered it to be our birth certificate. And that's why it was 10 million. It was found in a princess castle in Germany. This prince had it. And I was told we had the opportunity to buy it. It was on the German registry. So we had to get an export license from Germany. We had to get an export license from the EU to purchase this. So I said, where are we getting the money? So we had to do all this, you know, you cannot borrow money from the government unless Congress authorizes it so that wasn't happening anyway we finally found donors to raise 5 million and then at the last minute Congress gave us the other 5 million to buy this and i'll tell you it's it's to me anytime i took people around the library and i give tours mostly because i love it I take people around and i said you paid for this <laughs> you know You paid for this map. You should see it. You know, 1507, I believe it's is. But it's it's really weird because they knew Europe. They knew Africa around the outside, but they didn't know the new world. And so the U.S. is really funny. It's like real small. But, you know, you can see the word America. So.
1: I don't know about you guys, but in the run up to the new Indiana Jones movie, I've kind of been cycling that series along just here on the on the old Disney Plus. So I got a lot of maps on the brain right now, as you might expect uh, with what goes on in those films. This is a little bit different. Uh, these are sort of more formally preserved and uh, quite an interesting wrinkle in the Library of Congress's uh, purview.
0: I mean, I do always love a map story, especially the one that's uh, hard to acquire and has some weird details. And it does feel cinematic. But Haley, you actually did tip your hat here to the story she told about National Treasure, another movie.
1: That involves maps.
0: It too yes. involves maps. Yeah. It all comes so- back to maps. And yeah. <laughs> Some, uh, somebody get yeah. the
1: yeah, yeah, yeahs in here. What's, what's, what's happening? <laughs> let's, let, let's sing maps. Great reference.
3: I do want to give the people what they want. And what they want, as Elizabeth will will get into a little bit here, is actually uh, National Treasure and... I asked her about uh, the filming and the aftermath, and here are some great stories about all of that.
6: Well, that's kind of interesting because one of my attorneys does the location agreements for the movie oh, okay. companies when they come in. It way before me was you know the all the presidents men, but we did do the one with um, Leonardo DiCaprio, which is about Jimmy Hoffa, not um, Hoover, FBI oh, guys. Yeah. So apparently he. The story is, he created the card catalog. Whether that's true or not, I've always asked our public people, you know, public relations people, didn't you find anything? But anyway, but it's National Treasures and National Treasures too. National Treasures was the archives after I left. But you cannot steal out of those charters, you know, because when I was there, you know, the charters come up every morning into the rotunda. I used to bring people over to see it. And then in the evening, they go down, you know, so there's no way. Anyway, that was kind of fun. But then they did National Treasures 2 at the library. And um, one of the things that, well, it's kind of funny because they had the, the, the document, the presidents the presidents would pass a secret book from, anyway, and they did it up in the main, They Disney came in and they built these bookcases up in our, in the main reading room. And um, so the story was that you know they would come and they stole whatever. When the movie was produced, I always show people the staircase that Nicolas Cage ran down, you know, in the movie, which is fun. It's kind of like a comic book, but with people. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's really it's kind of a fun movie to watch. But here's my story about that one. I have stories about a lot of it. But after the movie came out, we asked Disney if we could keep the desk. Supposed desk, you know, the that presidents passed down. They wouldn't give it to us, but they loaned it to us for about six months and we put it on display, the secret desk. We had more people come to the library to see this desk, which was fake, than the draft of the Declaration, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, which were upstairs. But they came to see this desk and I And my daughter and I, she's here. My husband doesn't do these things, but my daughter came with me. We were able to go to the opening of NT2, National Treasures 2, in New York. And I was able to say to Jerry Bruckmeier, thank you. Because what he did for the archives and the library and for kids, he got them interested in history. He got them engaged to come to see these places. And, uh, you know, so I always uh, I felt. You know, of course, my daughter loves seeing the actors and actresses, but I loved being able to say thank you, you know, because you really have brought people in to the library. So while it's not actually true, it was fun.
0: So as everyone can see from these great anecdotes that we got to share at the end of the show, the Burtons are so much fun. I was really happy to be there with the podcast crew. Thanks a lot for being with me uh, both at the Burtons and today on the show. Alex?
1: Thank you, Amber.
0: And also, Haley. Thank you. We also want to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, who is with us at the Burtons and helped make all of these interviews possible. And our other producer, Kelly Mercano, who's helping edit the show. That is no small feat. So, thanks to both of them. And also, a shout out to our guests that we were able to interview, really appreciated their time. And all the people over at the Burtons who helped us put this all together. And um, music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Keller Mercano. If you want to read more about anything we've covered today, including a story we have about Justice Breyer's remarks at the Burtons, that's available on our website. It's law360.com podcast. And it would really help us out if you left us a written review and five stars. That's so other people can find our show. Thanks and see you back here next week.